Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and King Door Company. Welcome to Bakersfield Observed with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the new Bakersfield Observed podcast. We record it right here at the American General Media offices off California Avenue and Highway 99 in downtown Bakersfield. You can access this podcast via Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. You can also get it on kernradio.com. Today, we welcome back an old friend, his third time on the podcast. Can't get enough of him, government and civics teacher Jeremy Adams, a longtime teacher at Bakersfield High School and CSUB, whose book hollowed out a warning about America's next generation. We had him on earlier to talk about that. It has taken the country by storm. It is talking, it is addressing a very, very important subject about what's going on in our schools from the perspective of a career teacher. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. He has now turned his attention to Newsweek magazine, where he penned yet another essay. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, Jeremy Adams, welcome to the show. Richard Bean, I'm so excited. I was hoping that you would fit me for my gold jacket, uh, which is what I assume all three times guests get. But I, I guess that's not going to happen. I, I understand. No, it's going to happen. Uh, but we need to get you in here when we open up, uh, when the studios are open up post-COVID, so we can fit you for the jacket. You understand right, that, and right? I need to, and I need to lose some weight too, because I, I plan on wearing the gold coat every time <laughs> I, I'm on this podcast. As so. you should, as you should, Jeremy Adams. Seriously, sir, thank you for coming back again. Your book hollowed out, which I think is terrific, and it made the Amazon bestseller list. You, you have touched, and the news. Your your latest essay is almost a follow up to that, but. You have inadvertently or deliberately set yourself in the middle of one of the great debates going on in America today, and you're seeing it playing out in a lot before a lot of school boards, where parents have, have uh, across the country are coming to the realization that they don't have a lot of control over what's going on in the classrooms, or much less what is taught. Talk to me about what you wrote for Newsweek, because in the story, you talk about the parents, have, in, in your words, have lost the ability to shape the lives of their children. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that as parents, you know, of course you want your children to absorb your values. You want to empower and impassion them to have behaviors that will lead to a meaningful and full life. Uh, and, and you want them to, to be just well-rounded, good, moral, hardworking, decent human beings. And I think what happened in Virginia, I mean, everyone wants to talk about, you know, critical race theory, which we all know I don't know that much about, uh, and, you know, other things. But I, I think it was, it's, it's a much broader anxiety that parents have, which is that everywhere we look, 
And I say this not just as a teacher, I say this as a dad. We are constantly fighting forces in our country and our culture that are leading our children to behave and to believe things that we know will not lead to their flourishing in the future. So, you know, you look at the things that they consume from Hollywood. It's violent. It's vulgar. Sometimes it's borderline pornographic. You look at Sacramento. You look in Washington, D.C., where you don't have a lot of statesmen, but you have a lot of provocateurs. Uh, And then, of course, in education. Uh, I, I think what has happened in education is, and this is what I say in the Newsweek article, is we used to believe that schools could act as correctives for a lot of the failings of home life. So, you know, if, if you use foul language at home, well, you're not going to do it here. Uh, if, if you don't have any chores or any expectations at home, well, you're still going to have expectations here. Uh, and so, you know, we understand this in some ways, right, Richard? So, like, if you're not getting fed at home, schools are happy to give you a meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not getting clothed at home, we're happy to kind of help provide those kinds of resources. But for some reason, when it comes to moral or intellectual behavior, schools have kind of backed off and said, you know what, if things are bad at home, we really can't expect these children to have, you know, certain behaviors and, and, and values um, here at school. And I think that's absolutely wrong. I mean, I've noticed in the L.A. Times recently you've had a few articles uh, that, that reflected this. There was one that said, you know, because the kids have so many D's and F's, we just have to start grading in a different way because, you know, deadlines and homework, it's really overrated. And so th- that kind of thing that's happening in the schools is reflecting the pitfalls of our society rather than ameliorating the pitfalls of our society. You know, you, you, uh, you're a terrific writer. I've told you that before. And to that point, I want to read a, uh, a paragraph in, in your Newsweek essay in which you say school was supposed to be a break from all that, a sanctuary from the damaging influences and voices that corrupt young minds and veer children off a path of promise. It's supposed to be a place where young Americans are habituated to empowering behaviors that lead to success. Sadly, what American parents are realizing is that schools are now more likely to reflect the excesses of American, America's per- permissive culture than serve as a corrective to them. You just articulated that. When did can can you look back on on your twenty plus years of teaching and and say this is the this is the point where things began to change? Yeah, well, it's absolutely it's the it's the impetus I had for writing Hold Out is that you know I think it's one of the things that's it's kind of illuminating and frustrating to me at the same time, Richard. Is you know when you write this a book and it, it gets out there and it gets a lot of publicity. You know, sometimes people don't even listen to your argument. They just want to shout you down. And right. the, the, the thing that people will say is, well, you know, you're just an old man shouting into the wind. And every generation thinks the next one is going to hell in a handbag. Right. But here's, here's the problem, though. This is a uniquely perilous generation, though. I'm not making this up. And to your point, I have taught long enough now. Right. I have taught 24 years. And that is a long enough arc to say, look, there are some colossal and powerful forks in the road. And I'm telling you, and I'm telling your listeners, in the last five to ten years, we as a society have decided that you know, we are going to really approach education uh, in a different approach, where we're going to start looking at things like, you know, instead of academics, we're going to say, well, that's there, but we also have to worry about social-emotional learning. Yeah. And we have to worry about, you know, so we use, we use words that are good. So, I'm, so when I say things like, you know, empathy and compassion and tolerance and safety. 
These are good things, but it becomes problematic when you begin to supplant hard work, dedication, studying with those things instead of. And so, you know, one of the things that you see happening is, you know, people will say, well, look at the progress we're making. We're suspending less people at schools. But that's only because we won't punish kids for the things that they should be punished for. We talk about how, oh, we have these higher graduation rates. That's only because we don't have an exit exam anymore. So, you know, we, we, we've lowered the bar for every single thing. And, and I think it's reflective of a broader cultural drift uh, where we love the shortcut, right? I mean, this is, this is a country that loves to talk about get-rich schemes. We love to talk about trendy diets. We want to give everybody a trophy. Uh, we don't like to cut anybody from a, a tryout or a sports team. You know, we now, uh, the whole idea of a meritocracy is now very unpopular because not everybody is, is excellent. And so you take that kind of cultural value system and you put it into a school and this is what you get. Does it surprise you that many parents, and I know some of them have been triggered by different topics, whether it's critical race theory or whatever, but does it surprise you that the school boards now seem to be the new battlegrounds in the culture wars of America? It's not only, it's happening here locally, but it's happening all over the country. And these are school boards, at least in, in, in my lifetime from the reporting in, have been very sleepy places that are rarely covered unless there's a specific issue at hand. And now they become literally like like ground ground zero here. Does that surprise you? Yes and no. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me because that, of course, is kind of the natural democratic place to go air your grievances, right? So if your child uh, goes to a district that is pursuing policies that you strongly and vehemently disagree with, it makes sense that you would go to the school board. But I, I think the, the, the problem we have here in California, and, and let me just say this, I have friends, some very good friends on school boards in this county. I won't name them, and I won't name the, 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 the boards. But I feel genuine sympathy for these people who ran for office, Richard, to work on things like academics, yeah. uh, creating you know, programs to help at-risk kids succeed, uh, having a more equitable and, and, and high-achieving environment. And all they've been able to deal with now is COVID, COVID, public health, And the problems we're having is that those venues are where you get to yell, right? right. But the problem is the people on these school boards don't really have any power. So you're yelling at people who don't have the power to assuage this frustration that the public has. Explain how they don't have any power. It's the state of California. You know, the state of California has the power. The Department of Health and Human Services, the California Department of Health, has said you are going to wear a mask, yeah. right? right? Now, we, parents might object to this, and, and I will be honest, I am getting real sick of teaching in a mask. Like The Sacramento Bee, uh, kind of time stamp this a little bit, it's Thursday morning, two days ago the Sacramento Bee had a great article where they said, look, 5 through 11 can now vaccinate. Adults have all been able to be vaccinated. Um, literally, you have these antiviral drugs coming through Merck and Pfizer in the coming weeks. When do the kids get to take off the masks? Mm -hmm. And they asked the state of California bureaucrats, and their answer was, and I'm not making this stuff up. It sounds like Game of Thrones. They said, well, winter is coming. That was literally their response. Winter is coming? coming. (laughs) Winter is coming, (laughs) which is just code to me 
that we have no intention of taking off the mask. Well, no, because, because so, uh, uh, right, winter flu season, you yeah, know, right. Winter flu season, and then, and then you know, in the middle of February, they're going to ask again, and they'll say, "Well, you know, it's spring." Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, right. it, but but my point, though, my broader point is, if you're frustrated by that, and I personally am a little bit, I, I think it's time to let vaccinated teachers um, and little kids take off the masks. Uh, I think the science absolutely supports that. Uh, but if I was frustrated about that, I can't go talk to the people who are making the decision. And, and that's the problem is that these school boards are absolutely hamstrung because they have to follow the state and they absolutely don't want to defy the state because then they risk losing funding. And then that adversely hurts children in the future. So it really is a kind of a, a democratic mess, small d democratic uh, in the state of California. Yeah. Again, I'm going to quote from your, your piece for Newsweek that just came out. You said, uh, and th- this, this one resonated with me, you said, within the classroom, we have become softies, asking a little, tolerating everything, knowing we are expected to take late work, knowing that open book tests are increasingly the norm, group projects are all the rage, and asking students to engage in sustained reading of text or master large quantities of information is something a post-COVID student probably lacks the acumen to do, you know. Boy, that that in itself is a depiction of a classroom that no parent wants to hear, is it not? Have we become softies? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely, we've become softies. And, and I think that we have told ourselves it's okay because we think it's compassionate. But at the end of the day, though, I think one of the things we used to like to tell every American generation was, hey, success is a good thing. As Teddy Roosevelt said, Americans are not spectators. We go into the arena, and sometimes we get bloodied and marred and dirtied, and it's difficult, but we go into the arena to try and have successful lives. But here's the thing. Qualitative and quantitative success both require extraordinary sacrifice, extraordinary focus, extraordinary aptitude, And the classroom used to be this kind of microcosm where we taught these kids, you know, here's what it looks like to be successful. Here's what you have to do to get a good grade, to acquire knowledge, to to, uh, absorb these habits and these behaviors and these skills that you're going to need when you go into the arena in the future. And what we've done is under the chic banner of compassion, we think that we're somehow harming them or hurting them by saying that there is a bar and that you do need to meet it and that there are consequences if you don't. Uh, and, and so, you know, one of the things that, that we see happening is that, you know, a lot of students will say, I just simply can't focus anymore. One of the things that I've, I've noticed this year is my students will say, I can't study for a test anymore. I said, what do you mean you can't study for the test? They're like, well, I just, I just, I can't focus long enough to absorb the information. So what you're looking at, I mean, look at how let me break it down this way. Look at how our students live their lives, right? It is, it is not the kind of thing that's going to lead them into the arena of success. Look at what they eat. They drink energy drinks all day. They drink, you know, we have record high obesity for young people. Right. They're lethargic. They have sugar in their diets. They drink soda. They have processed foods. They come to school and they have trouble focusing. Um, they have been isolated for 18 months. And one of the broader things we see with young people is they're coming back to school, but they have a tough time actually connecting intensely to the things they have to be connected to. So you have football teams that, that don't you barely have enough people to go on a field. Hmm. You have 
you know, all kinds of programs, choir and music and drama and speech and debate, those programs being wiped out because kids just don't want to join. They want to go home. They want to be comfortable. They don't want to engage. And it's, it's a profound problem. No wonder they're unhappy. Well, I mean, is this, you know, uh, these are experiences and, and opinions you derived in 24 years of teaching in, in, in Central California. Uh, is it any worse here in California than it is uh, anywhere else in the country? Or is this a phenomenon that's playing out, a cultural, a societal phenomena that's playing out to some degree or another across the country? Well, I think it is absolutely a broad national phenomenon. Uh, you know, when I first started noticing uh, these things five or ten years ago, I thought maybe it was just me, maybe it was just our community. Um, but but you're really starting to see, and I, you know, I, I know I have nothing to do with this, but I'm starting to see more of that kind of general hollowed-out narrative that I tried to write about in the book being espoused by a lot of people in this country now who are finally really starting to see it. Um, there was a, a fabulous article written a few days ago, uh, I forget where I read it, talking about how, you know, it, it, what he called the changing face of social breakdown, right? So, you know, when you used to have the breakdown, it used to be because people were drinking or there was drugs or they had children before they were ready or they were committing crime. But now we have a social breakdown, not because people uh, aren't, 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 you know, it's not because they, they can't control themselves. It's because they don't literally want to do any of the things uh, that would lead to family life or to civic life or to uh, a successful uh, uh, professional life. You know, it's what we call the pathologies of passivity, uh, just a very chilled out, unengaged, isolated, lonely um, generation. And it's, it is an absolute crisis. I, I saw a study the other day, Richard, that said, I mean, I'm going to, this, this will knock your socks off. The CDC released this last year. It said that one out of four, a quarter of 18 to 25 year olds in America today have considered suicide. Think about that. Whoa, 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 whoa. One out Eight, of 18 four, to 25? 18 to 25 year olds, one out of four of them have considered suicide. Whoa. So for anybody that out there saying, oh, this guy is just pushing up against the ocean, he, the, the kids are great. They're awesome. They're wonderful. They're doing just fine. It's just, you know, phones are just like today, you know, or yesterday's TVs. No. No, no, no. This is a uniquely unhappy generation. It was already happening, and now COVID double downed, triple downed on these habits and these behaviors. Uh, and I think, I think the adults now see it. And, and, and we, we hope that schools are going to get our kids excited and, and, and invigorated and teach them good manners and, 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 and all of these things that will help them live lives uh, of meaning and purpose. And instead, schools, under the banner of you know being tolerant, don't do anything about it because they, they don't want to be tough on the kids. So to me, that's the real duality that's happening, and it's, it's helping no one. You know, it, it, Jeremy, when I hear you talk about what's going on in the schools and uh, challenge me on this, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out, but I'm not sure if it, it's that much of a stretch. If you look at the way, particularly in California, the politics of, of the correctional system, and a movement away from incarceration, a move, you know, a movement that says uh, you really have to do something extremely, you know, violent or whatever to be to be incarcerated. That you know, this is, is, is you know, the punishment doesn't equal the crime, so to speak. What I'm trying to say is, there's a whole 
there's a whole part of society that's viewing uh, prisons in a way that we never have. And it seems to me we're looking at the, something similar with schools, looking where, when parts of society looks at what what is the role of a school? I mean, we have movements in this country to get rid of the uh, of the gate program. Is that right? And yep. I, I, look, I mean, is yep. it is it that profound? Where 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 the is today's debate debate really about what should our schools be in and it, it, which in some ways is a condemnation on what they were. Well, I mean, I, you know, schools are inherently. I, I think that there's a tension. You know, I, I think that you know, uh, kind of. Education is broadly liberal, right? Because schools are, are your kind of education is kind of where we have progress take place, and we always are trying to change education so that the next generation of jobs kids are prepared for. But on the actual site of a school, it tends to be more conservative, right? I mean, it's kids have there are rules, and you have to you you have certain expectations, and those expectations haven't changed over time. But I think your broad point is a hundred percent valid and true and you see it infecting everything you talk about crime we're going to legalize all kinds of different things that used to be a crime and then we're going to pretend that society becomes more peaceful we are going to lower expectations for kids graduate record number of kids and then say that somehow we're producing a more educated society we're going to give everybody a trophy and then pretend that everybody is excellent but all of that is a lie. We are crime-ridden. We are ignorant. We are not achieving. And so lowering the bar feels good in the moment, but you're not actually achieving anything in the long run. Uh, and and, and th- that propensity where we, we think that, you know, that, that, we think that if, if, if some students aren't achieving A or B, that the policy must itself be oppressive, there is, I, 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 it's really difficult to describe the kind of long-run difficulty that teaches a young person, right? I mean, we are afraid to give honest feedback. I mean, mm. imagine, imagine growing up and your parents or your teachers weren't able to really be honest about your failings. Um, you know, students oftentimes, uh, we, we celebrate this kind of victimhood uh, where if you're asking me to do something that I don't want to do or I have to listen to an opinion that I don't like, that somehow that's harming me. Uh, and, and we defer responsibility. We do this all the time. You know, John Wooden said that the worst thing you can do for your children are the things that they should do for themselves. Well, we are constantly solving our children's problems for them because we don't want them to ever fail or hurt or suffer. And yet suffering is the price we pay for wisdom. That's what the Greeks told us. And our children are suffering, but they're doing it in their souls. And that's the wrong place to have to suffer. How do, where do these policies come from when you have these shifts in, in, cultural norms or expectations and 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 how do these things how do these things make them into how do they make it make it to bhs where and and you you and i've had this discussion i've had other conversations about it if you're a teacher in any high school in america today chances are you could be you know you could be told to f off by by a student with with very little consequences how, do, how does this stuff, and this is what these parents at the school boards, when they hear this from their children, they're appalled and they're, and they're wondering, what the hell has changed? How does this seep into, is this come down from the state or is are, are school boards intimidated by lawsuits 
by different groups who 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 claim that for for one reason or the other that policies discriminate against uh, people of lesser means. I mean, wh- where does this come from? I, I think that you you started to hit upon it right there in the very end. Uh, I, I think what has happened is you know, a lot of these policies. Um, I think start off with, with the heart being in the right place. I mean, if you have policies and rules that disproportionately hurt people who are poor or under advantaged or disadvantaged in this country, um, you should take a look at those policies. Uh, because we know that, you know, if, if you're being suspended all the time, if you're not in school, uh, you're not getting the education, we all know that that's going to reverberate. There was a bestseller uh, many years ago talking about the school-to-prison pipeline that the people who end up in prison, they kind of, we, we start kind of adjudicating their behavior at a young age, uh, and, and it echoes. And so I, I, I understand why we decided to take a look at that. And I, and I think that that's just, by the way. You know, I, I don't believe in a zero-sum or a, or a zero-tolerance policy, unless it's uh, some kind of action that was violent. Yeah. Um, I believe in second and third chances. Uh, I do believe that... that uh, telling a, a you know a twelve year old who screwed up that you're expelled forever uh, until high school. I do think that that's wrong, but I do think that what has happened is the pendulum has absolutely gone in the opposite direction. Where, as you said, you can have a kid that literally could throw an f bomb at you, and you're not supposed to send that student to the dean. You're supposed to have a circle where you talk about why you feel that way, um, and. And I think what that's done is that's actually hurt the other kids in the classroom who just want to learn. Uh, and, and what's happened is a lot of the bad behavior that you see, I don't know if you, if you saw this, up in Oregon, uh, they, uh, there was a school district where there's been so much violence, so much fighting, that they're going to have to go remote learning for a while oh because God. the kids literally don't know how to get along with one another anymore. Uh, in Detroit, uh, one day a week now, they are going to remote instruction. Uh, and, and so you, you see these policies that I think have a good heart, but I just think the pendulum has gone way, way, way too far in the opposite direction. And if I had to distill it down to one thing, just one thing, and again, it's always more complicated than this, but I would argue that somewhere in the last 10 to 15 years, we changed this notion of feeling good about yourself, where we, you know, I was taught by my parents that, you know, feel good about yourself when you've done good things. Right. Feel good about yourself when you've worked hard, you've been kind, you've done the work of, of being a virtuous person. I, we somehow change that calculus now, where we believe that if you feel great about yourself, if you feel completely special and entitled and amazing and right and correct all the time, that that will then lead to success. Well, it hasn't led to success. It's led to kids who feel that they don't just have a right to their opinion. They have a right to be right all the time. Mm, wow. I mean, help me here. If somebody's listening to this, a parent's listening to this and saying, who, who decided at BHS or in the state or wherever that if you have a student that goes up to his or her teacher and tells them to, to F off, that that's okay? Is that a, is that a is that a Kern County policy? Is that a state policy? Is that no. is that just the caution no, that's no, permeated the the hallways? I mean, what, how, how, where did it come from? I, I think what happens. Well, I mean, I, it, it's it's kind of interesting because you know for the first 
you know, 15 years of my career when I really wasn't a voice about these things or writing about these things at all, you know, you would go to meetings at the beginning of the school year in August, and, you know, you'd say, oh, well, we're going to start to do this, or we're going to start to do that. And you're like, well, where, where's that coming from? And you hear, well, it's coming from the district. Well, then you talk to the district, and they say, well, that's kind of coming from the state. And then the state, of course, is kind of absorbing, you know, the schools of education and kind of the trendy, because um, education is profoundly trendy. You know that. I mean, we, every four or five years, we want to reinvent the wheel and claim that the latest practice or the latest technology is the great panacea we've all been waiting for. And, and I think that that is a... You know, I am, you can tell by, and anybody who knows me knows, I'm, I'm pretty traditional. Um, I, at the end of the day, I think the things that really decide if you're a successful student is mainly the things that happen before you get into the classroom. Do you value education? Mm. Do you know how to work hard? Uh, have your parents told you that you should go to school? Do, are you respectful? Do you know how to take notes? Um, do you want to get good grades? And that's why, you know, when I was doing the book tour and talking, you know, I gave over 50 interviews. Um, and it was a, a really tough time in my life. I think you know that. My, yeah. my dad was dying of cancer. Mm. My daughter was going away to college. And I was promoting this book nationally. And you would talk to a lot of conservatives, and they would just bash the hell out of we teachers. And I had to push back and say, look, it feels good to, to pick on the schools, but at the end of the day, 90% of what a student does in school is not because of the school. It's because of the things that happen before they get there. So this and is so a parent, this is a parent to some degree, know, it's a parent issue, right? I would argue that it is a parent and a culture thing. Um, and, and of course, schools, and I think, I think the, the point of the Newsweek article was schools should be essentially, you know, trying to correct if something at the home or in the broader culture is leading them astray. And instead, we tolerate it or we reinforce it. And, and I think that's what parents are kind of digging into um, is, you know, I have three great kids, but sometimes they say things and they do things and you wonder, where are you getting that, that, that value system from? Where are you getting that opinion from? Where are you getting that behavior that you think is, is okay? And, and I feel like I'm constantly fighting my culture and my country uh, in, in order to raise just decent, normal human beings. And I, and I think that parents are tired that schools uh, are not really helping in, 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 in limiting those influences. Right. What, when, when you wrote but both Hallowed Out the warning about America's next generation and then this Newsweek piece. And as you said, you gave over 50 interviews for the hollowed out piece that really struck a chord uh, in the, with a lot of people in the country. At the same time, people are are quick to dismiss you. They're quick. You said it earlier. Oh, you just this must this must be a book from an angry old white guy who uh, who hates change because the world is changing and Jeremy Adams can't deal with it, you know. What do you say to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, it's really easy to swat it away. Uh, uh, what you say is, uh, quite simply, there has never been a generation in American history who view their lives, their country, and their relationships in the way that this generation does. And this generation is the most miserable group of young Americans in our history. Oh boy. When you look at rates of anxiety, when you look at rates of suicide, if you look at, at, at how often students have to cope just to deal with an every, you know, their everyday lives, 
This is not a normal generation. And by the way, the, 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 the only criticism that really bothers me is that I'm attacking the young people. I am not. Young people are – they are the innocent ones. It's you and me. We have allowed them to spend nine or ten hours a day on their phone. We have allowed them to be brought up in an education system that doesn't correct the excesses of our culture. We have allowed them to say things about this country that simply aren't true or to never balance the bad with the good. We are the ones who are ignoring them when they go out to dinner. We are the ones who don't have the family dinner anymore. We are the ones who feed them trash. We are the ones who don't ask them to read, and we let them watch their phones all day. We are the ones who know what behaviors lead to a good and successful life. And instead, because it's easier just to let them self-soothe on their devices all day, we are the ones who have failed them. So mm. it, is, it, is, it is really, you know, the articles I've been writing and the book I wrote, it's really about what we adults need to do. And we have got to start adulting again. We have got to put ourselves in the physical, moral, and intellectual space of young people. We've got to, we've got to preach that traditional institutions and relationships are good. Friendship is good. Mm. One out of five millennials say they don't have a good friend in the entire world, Richard. Love, love, wow. romance marriage is good mm-hmm. you know half of 18 to 35 year olds don't have a romantic partner you know and we keep saying well hey you know teen drinking is going down and teen drugs are going down and teen pregnancy is going down do you know why it's going down because they're literally not leaving their houses wow. young people don't want to get their licenses anymore literally they are terrified of the world and everything they need they can get on their devices mm-hmm. and so it's making them miserable so i you know, anybody can say if they want, you know, this is just every generation thinks this. No, this is a uniquely perilous generation, and I'm worried about my kids, and I'm worried about my students. Wow. Uh, let's go back to the school boards, which, again, uh, are, are active across the country. And, and for different reasons, a lot of this, and I don't want to make this about critical race theory per, per se, but when you, you watch these parents, whether it's Kentucky or Georgia or California or Kern High School District or wherever— take their frustrations to these school boards. And you just articulated a little earlier that you felt for some of the school board members who, who sought those positions for the right reasons are now hamstrung, in your words, because of state policies. But a, a lot of these protests are dismissed and labeled. I mean, some of these parents have been labeled terrorists. Uh, by uh, by different yeah. uh, different people. How does that make you feel? Well, I mean, I I, I mean, I think to a certain degree, I it's it's hard. And this is not. I feel like I'm running for office. I'm trying not to to answer the question. Uh, I I do feel for the parents, but I do think they can. I think sometimes they they can kind of get a little bit excessive mm-hmm. um, in in the things that they fault um, educators for. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, I, what I do think is good is I do think that parents are becoming more and more aware that what is happening in the lives of their children eight hours a day is not necessarily things that are going to be helping their kids, and they're, and they're frustrated about it, and I think that that's good. Where, where I get a little frustrated sometimes is, uh, you know, when, when we, we yell at, at well-meaning people and we scream at yell, you know, well-meaning people and people have to get off of Facebook and social media because, you know, they're feeling targeted uh, because they're simply doing what the state has asked them to do when it comes to a vaccine mandate or something. That, that, that does bother me. Um, you know, the, the, the root word of civilization is civility. 
uh, and, and, and I find the lack of civility sometimes at these hearings to be, to be disturbing. Mm-hmm. And I do think sometimes um, you have people who come in and they speak, and they're not there to actually make changes. They're there just for the speech to, to get headlines. Right. Um, and so I, I just I feel really difficult. I, I feel bad for the parents who feel like they can't evoke change. I feel bad for the board members who are, are hamstrung, like I said before, um, but, but I do think it's a generally positive development to have parents who care enough to show up. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that is a positive development, all things considered. Yeah. You know, it, 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 uh, we, we, we end up with wondering, like, where do we go from here? Can you put the genie back in the bottle? Or are, the, are these traits that this, this younger generation is displaying, are they going to be forever or are they reversible? You, you mentioned in your Newsweek essay uh, this, this, this concept by the philosopher Thomas Hobbes about small morals. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so Thomas Hobbes uh, used the phrase small morals to describe the values and the virtues and the behaviors that make a society function um, between person to person. Uh, and so he, he essentially was juxtaposing them to these, you know, we talk about these towering ancient virtues, you know, of the Roman world, and they talked about fortitude, justice, justice, temperance, wisdom, uh, and, and, you know, you have these grandiose calls to human, uh, you know, kind of, kind of human greatness and, and grandeur and, and, and enchantment. And uh, what Hobbes was saying was, okay, that, that's great. I mean, it's wonderful if you are... Uh, wise and strong and, and temperate and all of that. But really, what you really want in the people, by and large, is know how to treat one another. Mm. Uh, manners are simply a way of showing other people that you respect them. Uh, say hello. Say thank you. Look people in the eye. Don't interrupt people. Uh, I understand when somebody's in a position of authority, there's a proper and an improper way to talk to them. Uh, understand that you don't talk to your teachers like you talk to your buddies. Understand that you, you don't take out your phone in the middle of a lecture and start posting things because it occurred to you at that moment because you realize it's rude. Uh, so it's the little things, it's the small morals mm. that I really think that if you add it all up would make a really big difference. But it, it is kind of galling. It is galling what a lot of young people, when they are on their phones or they've been you know, isolated for 18 months, it's like they literally don't know what, what, what is and is not incorrect. Um, oh boy. You know, I'm always shocked by the amount of profanity I hear on campus. You walk around campus, it would shock you. I'm always shocked by how much trash in different campuses are just strewn everywhere. It's the little things. You don't talk like that. You throw your trash away. It, it, and, and that really, I think, it, it, you know, we can have this huge fight about critical race theory and vaccines. But really, if we would just do the little things, if we'd bring that back... I think it would make all the difference in the world. Well, Jeremy, let me ask you this, just as a, just an aside before we wrap this up. But it sound, it almost sounds like you're making an argument for private schools. Could could, could I argue that if, if my kid goes to Garces, that you know, they're not going to be throwing the f bombs around because they're going to be dealt with, you know, in, in a way that public schools aren't, or they're not going to be dropping trash because there's consequences. Are is it is it as simple as that? Well, I, I see where you're coming from, uh, and I have I have thought for a while that uh, you're going to get more and more parochial school enrollment. I think next year in California, because Gavin Newsom has said that. 
five to 11 year olds have to get this vaccine, which, you know, again, I'm pretty pro vaccine, but even that is a little galling. Uh, it's a brand new vaccine. It's a population that doesn't, you know, get sick with them. And to tell every parent in the state of California, you have to do this. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of, of homeschooling. So I understand why you would make that leap. Um, but I am a, you know, I, I am a non-apologetic, bleeding heart romantic of public education, you know, of public education in this country, uh, from Horace Mann to now. Um, you know, I believe that if you don't have a successful public school system, uh, the democracy just simply doesn't work. Uh, and I'd like to live in a world where every parent was responsible for the education of their child and they took that responsibility seriously and they had the time and the resources to do it. But we don't live in that world. We haven't for a long time. So really what I want is I, you know, I, I believe that, that education is the great equalizer. Uh, it is the great democratizing institution in society because it says that if you do the right thing here, then it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what happened before you came into this classroom. If you are willing to do the things to be successful here, then the evidence is clear that a high-quality education is the door to the American dream. And I want that door to be as wide, Richard, and I want it to be as deep as humanly possible. And to me, that's probably going to happen uh, if we can fix our public schools. Very good. All right, Jeremy Adams, always terrific having you on here for your hat trick, your third appearance here. We will have your jacket the next time you come to studio. The book is hollowed out by Jeremy (laughs) Adams, warning about America's next generation. We're talking about his latest essay for Newsweek. What's next, Jeremy? Uh, You know, I I don't know. I have a a few thoughts. I I actually was thinking about writing an op-ed about what does it signify for young people that they don't want to get their driver's license. Um, that, that's really uh, that's really weighing on me a lot. That, that many of my students, they just they don't want to drive. They don't want to get their license. And you ask them why, and it's because they don't particularly want to go anywhere. Uh, and that it's so shocking to me, that kind of lack of connective tissue to experiences and places and things that made my childhood magical. Um, you know, when I was growing up, everybody was dying to get their license because that was synonymous with freedom, right? And, and I've noticed that, that, that young people really are not as interested at all in getting their license. And I'm also thinking about, I just uh, talked to my publisher. They're very, very happy uh, with the numbers. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe a follow-up at some point in the future to haul it out. Um, but, but we'll see. I got, I got three children to raise and two jobs and a... Uh, a wildly successful and brilliant wife. So <laughs> there my hands you are full, go. We'll let you get back to it. Jeremy Adams, thank you, sir. Always appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Okay, buddy. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and King Door Company.